0: Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 82 of the podcast, the topic is Innovation Corridor in Connecticut. Our guest is Marty Guay, Vice President of Business Development at Stanley Black & Decker. In this conversation, we talk about a Connecticut state initiative designed to enable technology adoption and workforce creation. Stanley backs a strategy that enables industry 4.0 adoption and workforce creation focused on advanced manufacturing. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, but also for engineers and for shop floor operators. Hosted by futurist Trond Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip. Marty, how are you? Doing well Trond, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so uh, happy to be speaking uh, to you about these uh, important workforce issues. First, Marty, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about you, you and your background. Uh, we um, share an interest in security, among other things. You've you've done a lot of interesting uh, things, both at Stanley <clears throat> Black and Decker, but also um, before that. Uh, so, security, healthcare, and 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 then now corporate innovation and, uh, across a lot of domains, and and you know with a big interest in, in and portfolio and workforce. How how do you explain all of that from George Washington University Bachelor International Relations to to what you're doing now?
1: Well, it's it's always a um, it's always a circuitous, somewhat of a circuitous path that doesn't seem too connected. But it it, it reminds me of the uh, the notion that uh, the the uh, the playwright Oscar Wilde said that when you're going through your life, it seems a bit disjointed, a bit chaotic. Um, and, and somewhat random, but when you look back over your life, you start to see that your life is like a play of well-organized acts with different people coming in and out of those acts and some of the characters staying through all of the acts. So I would say that um, there's some wisdom in that notion. So I've had a lot of experience in in different things, but you know, from my perspective, they've all been additive and cumulative to where I am now because... Um, the things that I'm working on uh, require an intense amount of uh, stakeholders and collaboration. And so having a lot of experience in a lot of different things uh, is actually a um, an important asset, I think, in these times. Yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and I guess it'll make a lot of
0: sense to to uh listeners when they they hear what what it is that you you're up to as well. So so you had a you had a few years at Securitas uh which uh, is a Scandinavian company. What how how was that?
1: Well, it was it was quite terrific. I I was at Securitas I think between the the parent company uh and the spin-off uh almost 12 years, 11 years. And, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating to work for a, um, a Scandinavian organization. They, they have a much more long-term perspective on, um, on problems, on, on seeding solutions that take a long time to bloom. Uh, so I would say, you know, Americans are, uh, I think they know how to react fast and react well, but in terms of long-term planning, uh, I think the Scandinavians are far better. Actually,
0: interesting. So that's security, which brought you into uh, to Stanley. Uh, and yeah. and you know, not a, everybody is fully aware of this, but Stanley Beckendecker has a, a big security business. There- Am I? Uh, how did that? get started. I, I, I've i heard one story that goes, uh, you, you make so many doors and then doors obviously have locks and locks are security. And then
1: what, what's the story there? The, the, the genesis, I think, of the security division was actually to diversify the portfolio. Uh, our CEO, Jim Lurie, uh, at the time, um, 20 years ago, uh, was a CFO. And he realized that we were really We were really correlated to large box retailers in our tools division, um, and in cycles, construction cycles, um, home home building cycles. So they wanted to diversify the portfolio. And security actually is one of those um, it's one of those companies that doesn't follow a a cyclical pattern of performance because. You need security all the time. It's like insurance. You know, when when, when the economy slows down, you don't get rid of your insurance. Mm-hmm. You may try to negotiate a better rate, but but you still have to retain it. So, it was a way to diversify the portfolio. We just actually sold our security business back to Securitas, right. so it's gone full circle, uh, which is interesting. But um, I'm more more than happy to stay with the um, with the big. Uh, industrial American manufacturer, Stanley Black & Decker. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so what we're here to talk about, I guess it's a little different because your portfolio now is more in emerging technology and uh, startup ecosystems and, and then you know generally in corporate innovation. Um, and, and this is, I think, an area that uh, a lot of people are starting to recognize uh, Stanley for doing a, a lot of important work there. And in fact, are uh, quite a few specific programs uh, that you have. M- maybe we'll talk briefly about some of those before we get into the workforce area, because I think, you know, they, they are obviously in your portfolio, they are very related, uh, you know, off the bat, it may not seem that way. Um, but how, how does all of that relate? Why is it, uh, if I may characterize, you know, Stanley as having su- such a wide portfolio of different types of innovation engagements you have uh, and you're better than me to describe this but you you know you have a venture activity you also have an accelerator that invests you know and works with uh, tech stars and works you know very early stage and you have a bunch of sort of spin out activities and then obviously acquisition acquisitions and things like that but there's many many different ways and, and then of course as we will talk a lot about you have these talent programs uh, both for diversity reasons and, and to to bring in innovation to the company. Why is it that you're engaged in such a variety of different programs in order to kind of make up this portfolio?
1: I, I think what we realized um, several years back, and we, we we hired our first chief innovation officer uh, at the end of 2017, beginning of eight, end of 17, beginning of 18. Dr. Mark Maybury, who was um, who worked, you know, a long time in government service and in and quasi-government activity, and, and was the chief scientist of the U.S. Air Force, and got his PhD in AI from Cambridge. Say, what is a tool company worried about that kind of stuff for? But what we realized is that, you know, ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of all innovation in the world takes place outside of our company, and we needed ways to be connected to those ecosystems. To those startups to those investors who are investing in things that that really were important for us uh, we needed to connect into communities that were solving problems without legacy you know we're, we're a 180 year old company we need to bring legacy along startups can clean paper and go forward so they look at problems very differently than ours so we put a lot of different I would say strategies uh, in motion that connected into these multiple of of ecosystems, whether they're startup communities, academia, um, uh, venture investing, and of course, you know, when you venture invest, you're dealing with all the other corporate venture arms and and VCs. Um, so you really learn a lot about what people are working on, and we. One of the big learnings we saw is 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 connecting with um, non-competitive corporates, you know, who are working on big problems like ours. Um, whether it's things in sustainable packaging or, um, you know, big data or, or other things, but but investing in the investing into what other people are are working on is really quite critical because if you're too insular in this world, um, you're going to miss a lot. People are working on things that are amazing. So we have to be really outside facing. We work inside, but we're outside facing to catch the things that are here, but also the things that are coming.
0: You know, it's so refreshing to hear that from from a large company because, you know, clearly, that's a bit of a prejudice against large companies, and I've worked in many that aren't like that. But the prejudice is, of course, that you sit there and you say, well, we are the biggest ship in town. We are the biggest, you know, people will come to us. Uh, there is some of that, however, right? When you have a brand like you do that is has its tentacles in, in many circles, you surely also, uh, and perhaps that's why some of these programs actually are quite successful, because precisely because... You do have the brand when you then do reach out you you get kind of double double effect of it or or is that sort of how how you think of it
1: yeah i I, I think you know I think the brands you know there's something that we're proud of, but we 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 also try and strike a, a real strong tone of humility uh, because if we if we could do everything ourselves, we wouldn't have to go outside if we could build everything ourselves, we wouldn't have to acquire. If we had all the domain knowledge inside, we wouldn't take investments in other companies to gain on all of their human capital. Um, so we're, we're humble enough to understand that. You know, there's a real important mix in life to have confidence and humility in the same moment. Um, and it's, it's super important to, to have both. Uh, you've got to understand who you are and what you do well and leverage that. Uh, And you have to understand where you need help and and align with others, either through collaboration, through investment, through just flat out learning. I'm I'm a big believer that people don't spend enough time in their day uh, allocating time to learning. You know, it's interesting you said that because we'll we'll switch to talking about your
0: innovation corridor in Connecticut project uh, that you're engaging with in a moment. But learning is is so important. So when you do have such a portfolio of programs, how is it that you organize what you learn? Because it's one thing to have these programs and I, I guess to, you know, to have startups and others' talent attracted to these programs. Right. But it's a whole nother thing to actually learn from them.
1: We have a... Um You know, we had to rationalize when we brought in a new CTO, we really had to rationalize our innovation strategies. And it's actually quite uh, simplistically elegant how we've kind of organized, how we view it all. Um, I can't share all that with you, but but I would say one of the things that we did well early on was we brought together probably about 30 to 35 people in the company who are working on innovation. So... You know, people on the CTO's team, all the VPs of R and D, innovation leaders, venture leaders, our chief AI officer—you know, people like this—and uh, we we meet once a month, and we know who does what on that call because we've created a we've created somewhat of a um, a heat map in terms of all the areas of importance for us. Uh, In innovation, let's say it's batteries or AI or different components of advanced manufacturing and who are the people that are most fluent in those areas or most interested in those areas. So we quickly now know who's going to pass a ball to us or who's going to who we're going to pass a ball to. You know, I think that's important in in business because as with anything else in life, velocity uh, is a sign of success. If, if you don't coordinate velocity, you stumble into chaos. But but, but things that can move fast are well-synchronized in life, in nature, in business, and sports. Speed is a sign of success. And we know that it's an important ingredient to scale the strategies that we want. So let's use that then as a segue because
0: it's – you know, we're talking about an innovation corridor, and I'll let you explain what that means and, you know, what role you have in this in this project. But, and there's many ways, I guess, to, to start talking about this. But one way, I, uh, you know, is to think about Connecticut and, and the challenges that the state faces in terms of manufacturing and talent. And this is a known story from many, well, certainly many manufacturing states, and, and, and I guess it's the same for, for several states in, in New England as well. That uh, you know, industry has been in somewhat of a decline, and and you know, young people don't necessarily go towards the trades or or towards manufacturing companies. Um, Is that why you are working uh, with the city of Hartford and 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 working up this project on an innovation corridor, or why would a global company like Urs be so? specifically focused on one particular location and and whatever happens with the innovation cycles I guess just outside your door when you to your point have so many tentacles uh, worldwide and certainly across the U.S. you know in terms of startups and talent and and clearly you
1: recruit from from a lot of different places right right Uh, you know I think it starts like everything from the top Um, our, our CEO Jim Lurie uh, came into the job in August of 2016 as the, you know, as formerly our COO. And Jim, Jim had been with the company a long time. And, um, you know, he 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 really, he saw some things going on in Connecticut uh, that, that really frustrated him. And I think at the time, General Electric was leaving the state and other companies were leaving. And he said, you know what, we're going to go the other way. We're going to lean in. And we know that, you know, uh, the cities of Connecticut are small. Uh, They're what I call tier two cities. Uh, And and all American tier two cities have the same problems as tier one cities without the resources or without the, the expensive part of the city carrying the city, right? So you can look at Erie, Pennsylvania, Birmingham, Alabama. You know, you you pick a tier two city; they're just really struggling in America today. So we we felt that we could combine a few different strategies. One was around uh, what we know best is advanced manufacturing, where we want to create a leadership position, and that could be used to inflect change in the urban core. It could also expose people in the urban core to to get engaged in manufacturing, manufacturing jobs in Connecticut are the highest paid in the United States. They average $101,000 a year. There's 160,000 people in the space, so it's about 15% of GDP. Um, But like most manufacturing uh, places, we have the silver tsunami. People are getting older, they're retiring, how do we replenish? So we thought one of the areas was to really open it up to you know, people in the cities who really haven't been exposed to manufacturing. And that's one of the strategies. The other is just full stop economic development in the city. And innovation corridors can spur economic development um, in the cities. Connecticut, we believe Connecticut's big enough to take a big swing, but small enough to do it fast and well and try and copy paste it elsewhere. So Connecticut became, you know, something very important for us because we've been there 180 years. We came during the second industrial revolution, Stanley Black and Decker, and when Henry Ford was opening up his plants in, in, in Detroit, he visited Connecticut. He went to Colt Firearms in Hartford because they were the first company in the world to, ec- to be economically viable in mass production, making guns for the Civil War actually made guns for both sides. Um, and uh, he came and visited Stanley Works, uh, which, which was a hand tool company because Stanley Works was also working on mass production. So we've got a long legacy and we, 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 we feel that we should stay where we are and try and turn the corner um, in terms of where we are. There's a lot of collaboration going on in the state. I would also say, Tron, that we believe that the... Industry 4.0 adoption of the SME community the small and medium enterprise manufacturers is extremely slow and one of the strategies of this innovation corridor is to help nourish that whole community by exposing them to to great technologies great companies um in industry 4.0 that they can adopt so Small manufacturers don't have the expertise, they don't have the time, they don't have the resources. If they get the resources, they cannot make a mistake because they don't have they can't try it again. So we we want to create an ecosystem that they can come to and really figure out how to, you know, play with the technology, experiment and deploy, and then concurrently have a workforce that's ready to, to to work with that technology.
0: So, so in that sense, the project is also self-serving, I guess, because you need somewhat of a structure around you with suppliers that understand what you're all up to. Is, is that kind of, I mean, that's, that would be part of the, sort of the instrumental reason, you, you know, the, the suppliers, the small, so it's not just individual talent you're talking about. You're talking about the organizations that you presumably would work with or want to work with. You want to sort of train, uh, you know, sort of upskill the entire ecosystem as opposed yes. to upskill individuals.
1: Yes, you know, upskill the ecosystem and, and, and train and develop people on the same technologies that are going into the ecosystem. I mean, no use having a community college train people on something that is not being deployed. We'll, we'll, we'll train them on the same things that are being deployed right in the ecosystem to create the workforce that can use that tech. We think mm-hmm. that's really critical. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk specifics. So Innovation Corridor—that's a concept. It's a brand, I guess. Uh, h- how did it get started? Where are we now, and who who are the supporters? This is kind of a public-private partnership, I get it, yeah. or is it? So who's who's in charge of it, or who's working on it?
1: Well, it, there's a there's a multiple of people working on. Just people in the city of Hartford. The mayor has been, you know, and his team have been very active in supporting this endeavor. Um, the state of Connecticut. Uh, has been very active there the department of economic development uh the 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 uh advanced ct which is the economic development agency for the state the governor's office the governor has set aside a grant process um that will fund uh 20 percent up to 50 million dollars for this innovation corridor or this innovation campus so the strategy that we're working on at Hartford is actually a two hundred and fifty million dollar strategy to mm-hmm. include housing, retail. It's really to turn around a neighborhood that has old factories from the industrial revolution, and 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 re- turn around the neighborhood and 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 really uh, help elevate the people living there into this new strategy. Uh, there'll be retail. There'll be you know uh food and breweries and different things but but it's uh it's a campus-like project interesting Um, so the
0: size of this is uh what exactly i i I don't uh know the downtown hartford area well enough to sort of imagine this but
1: yeah it's not it's it's kind of outside of downtown but if you could picture a street um probably about a half mile three quarters of a mile long that'll be the spine of a a neighborhood with a campus, it's on a fast track line, a bus line. So it has full accessibility. It's a very inclusive strategy to really try and get people, in the neighborhood in the city engaged in it, not to gentrify a neighborhood, but really to activate talent. We believe there's a diverse talent pool that's trapped in a lot of these cities that don't have access to these kind of strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, so Skills-based hiring initiatives, you know, so we can skill people up uh, through different programs. Um, We're bringing in companies from the outside to participate, to come into Connecticut to participate. Uh, Some of these are companies like Rockwell Automation, Cisco, Tulip Interfaces, uh, Ready Robotics, Bright Machines, SICK Technologies, you know. Non-competitive wow. companies that could can really help activate the ecosystem again, because what we're trying to do is to draw people into advanced manufacturing, train them up on technologies that are being deployed into the into the SME community, and probably mm-hmm. all the way up to the OEMs. But the SME community, um, the small and medium manufacturers represent. 98 97 of all manufacturing in the united states not number of manufacturing companies but full stop the amount of manufacturing is really the big companies get the the press but manufacturing is really a long tail as you know of of, of a a amazing amount of companies so how does the educational
0: component fit into this because you know and and you and i uh have uh talked about this a little bit uh, earlier but you know there a lot of people would say oh the skilling you know situation in has to be solved at the community college level others would say no they are always going to be too slow for that and there's too few even of those uh you know sort of distributed institutions learning has to happen in you know on the job essentially you know and uh so how does your thinking there specifically on the corridor on this physical sort of campus, how do you envision physically that people are going to be uh, learning these things? are they going to happen through these some f- semi structured programs or are they going to actually be carried out in uh, you know other educational institutions part of this uh, program or h- how do you envision skills We're, to be taught
1: yeah we we envision um we envision getting everyone in the ecosystem participating. Uh, Within this innovation corridor, um, we will have a a community college locate a presence there uh, and a couple of colleges Mm -hmm. focused on advanced manufacturing. Uh, Also in this innovation corridor, there's another um, building which we're going to focus on uh, digital skills uh, and digital skills we we believe that being digitally literate in this society is 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 a key component for success so if you're digitally literate you can get a job in a hospital as a as a technician you can get a job you know in in in, in banking or insurance working with data if you if you don't have any digital skills you're in the service economy you're probably hourly so on this, in this campus, Tron, we, we would have a whole digital skilling um, um, venue, and, and people who could go through this really don't even have to have uh, went to college or community college. Uh, they could be second career. They could be second chance. You know, they could be people who are young, people older, but we want to create as many cohorts <laughs> as possible, or at least at least attract these workers into this workforce. There will be also be advanced manufacturing. We talked about um, bringing in a community college, and we're partnering that with a large uh, industrial company who will bring in an academy to help train these people. Um, we're also bringing in some top engineering schools to work in the neighborhood to train and skill people up. Because as you know, manufacturing needs entry-level people with a high school degree all the way up to PhDs working on AI, right? Um, So we need, we need it all, but we need to have plumbing. I call workforce all the time. It's all about plumbing. We need to have as many pipes coming in. So whether people have, you know, not went to any formal education or second career or they, they want to get involved in manufacturing at 45 years old, and they've been in the service economy. We we want them. We want to skill them up.
0: You know, it's interesting. Education for so long was sort of this mantra in the U.S. Like, you, you know, you have to have a college degree. And if you have that, then you are in one category of people. And those are the people that, you know, a certain class of people would the only people you would interact with and then right. there's another sort of type the the kind of I guess the vocational track where you you know get a job and you know and then people are proud proudly part of that sort of track are you sort of saying that that's becoming now uh, you know really an outdated view of things like you you know you can be very specialized and learn really advanced skills without having gone through the traditional college track and I guess it perhaps works the other way as well, even if you have gone through college, if you're going to be useful in tomorrow's advanced manufacturing environment, you're going to have to, to learn some actual skills uh, as they are practiced in industry today. And they may be different than whatever you, you learned 20 years ago, even if you went to a good college
1: yeah i i I, I mean leading
0: question i'm, I'm assuming yeah, it's some yeah. we, some version
1: of yes here but yeah we 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 we, uh, we work a lot on this and i was just um he, you know uh communicating with the chairman of synchrony today and she margaret Keene, and she um synchrony's used to be ge ge's uh card company ge's uh card services right they're one of the biggest one of the top 10 financial institutions in the country and Margaret Keene's the chairman, and she wrote an op-ed today on or yesterday on on workforce skilling. Um, and a couple years ago, fifty percent of all their jobs required a college degree. Today, um, only ten percent do. Yeah. So they've really changed what's required. I will say I'll give you a couple statistics that'll you'll you'll you'll, you'll scratch your head a bit because of the disconnection with it formal edu- institutional education, and workforce. Um, 60% of all job postings in, uh, require, a, 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 for large companies, require a college degree. 33% of Americans have a college degree. So you think about that notion, you can see the mismatch all of a sudden. The other statistic I'll share with you is the Markle Foundation did a study, and it said 54% of people are in jobs that they're not 100% qualified for. So they may they may be a job where it says, you know, MBA required and somebody has a bachelor's degree, you know, all of those kind of things, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's you know, learning, you know, there are things that you can learn in school and there's things that you can learn on the job. And a lot of things you can learn on the job, you can't learn in school. And I think this has been underrepresented uh, for a long time. I always tell people, I've yet to meet a person in the world who's learned how to swim or ride a bike reading a book, <laughs> right? You just, yeah. there's certain things that you have to, you have to do, right? And there's certain, you know, and in, in technology today is transformational. You know this, you're in one of these transformational organizations, but I don't know anybody who's bought an Apple phone and read the book. The manual or downloaded it you turn on that technology you're working with it and the technology is you know the purpose of technology is to make something simpler a lot of technology does the opposite but great technology is to make things simpler and that you know apple has succeeded in that right
0: marty i'm so glad you brought us onto the simplicity point because i was going to challenge you on this uh you know, even the definitions here are a little misleading. I find right because Industry Four I mean, perhaps it was a good idea at the time to create that term, but it means, at least to me, um, so many different things that it it, it stands for some sort of uh, cornucopia, some list of enormously advanced technologies. And but as you point out, and I want I want to hear what you think about this if you think about low-wage earners all the way from the bottom, really, of the corporate uh, ladder here, and you have the ambition that also they are going to benefit from this new age of manufacturing, and that's sort of what you're saying. How on earth is that going to happen if the technologies remain with the idea that you need to become an expert before you even start using the technology? It is so different from what an Apple... Phone takes as an assumption, which is anybody can walk into the store and buy a computer that's so advanced that you would have to be a PhD twenty years ago to really kind of right. exploit the opportunities of what uh, what something that we have in our pockets today is doing. Yet the skill level it takes, I, I'm going to assume to to operate an iPhone, and I've seen it with you know my my kids that are you you know from an early age. It is just a very very intuitive interface when are industry technologies well one when are they going to cater to that kind of reality and uh and and how would your initiative
1: there in in, in hartford help that it, it has challenge? to go that way it, it be, if you put people in the middle if you put people in the middle then you'll get to that destination or you will you will focus on a human led uh innovation but it, you know i would say that I've been in this innovation world and, and been all over the world and met with all kinds of different people. What I realized is that there are a lot of people working, including in advanced manufacturing, on very complex problems. And you know from your from your early days in high school math and college math, when you have a complex equation, a lot of constants and variables, some some in, you know, English letters, some in Greek letters, whatever. When you create a solution, that solution is complex. A complex problem creates a complex solution or a complex solution solves a complex problem. The real innovation is taking the the complex solution and making it simple. And when you make it simple, you X out this, you X these out, you cross these out. And when you can make it simple, you make it stronger and you make it scalable. You cannot scale complexity. You only can scale simplicity. And I will tell you anything that is scaled in the world has been simple. But if you look behind the curtain, it is rigorous complexity hardwired that, that is not, is not uh, running over the participant. Who's using that technology or working with that technology? And I think this is what we need to solve for in manufacturing. Uh,
0: Well, Marty, so then I want to bring us full circle because you said, you know, in the early days, uh, Henry Ford came to Connecticut and he was impressed by mass production. And there are many stories about the early industrial revolutions, uh, you know, even the second uh, industrial revolution. But arguably, in those early days, Yes, some of those technologies, you know, they weren't exactly friendly to workers, you know, as a system, and they became kind of exploitative, or at least the system wasn't, you know, hasn't been right. ideal to workers. But at least in the beginning, it was catered to a mass audience. And the, and I believe the founders of, of those companies thought long and hard, not only about making the technology simple so that their workers could use it, but they were also actually uh, engage in training because they, they they figured out that, you know, if you are a farmer and you're going to now work in these new factories, you're going to need some new skills. So there was this uh, reproachment you know, there was this, uh, you know, meeting between the new technologies of the factory and, and then the skills of people. How is it then that, you know, arguably hundreds of years have passed and the technologies in the consumer market for iPhones and all of that have received enormous investment and are actually arguably simple? And then industrial tech largely has remained complicated with complex interfaces and has received comparably much less financial investment, certainly from from venture investors. Right. Right. So uh, number one, why is this happening? And and two, is, is any of that changing? Are you able to see a, a path here where are you seeing some of these new companies coming in and potentially now actually simplifying the the reality for for workers operators you know anybody that's not kind of in a management track who's lucky enough to sit by a desk you know like you and i with a nice little you know with a nice screen and
1: can it can it's focus a, yeah it's a great question I, I i i was thinking while you were asking it about um service you know this whole service you know companies that provide a service model you know when Samuel Colt or Frederick Stanley made their made their products and they shipped them out on the train or shipped them out. There was no way to ship it back and have somebody fix it and ship it back. I mean, they had to build products that were all, almost self serving and and the guns that were made, you know, in interchangeable parts. So if something went wrong in the battlefield, you know, a common soldier could 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 operate this technology, and I think. I think sometimes, and I, I, I the the software companies are notorious for this, right? They they'll publish things with with bugs, and and you'll have to hire their you know their trained ERP person or this person, and all of a sudden now you're you're knee deep into a forever moment uh, that's never really perfect. Uh, but I think I think where the I think where the world is going because the world is. You know, what's happening in the world today, um, is that we're looking to, we're looking for full participation. We're looking for everybody who wants to get engaged can get engaged. Even people who are, who are, um, intellectually impaired, people that are disabled, people that are new, people, you know, and, and to do this, you need to create, you need to create systems or moments that are very human friendly. That, that humans can kind of get things done and do things well. And I think these will be the winners um, going forward. It's like the companies who have this this unbelievable customer uh, experience and delight. You know, these are the winners that people want to work. People want to use their app or use their system. I think it's the workforce is going to have to. Companies will have to compete on that. They're going to have to be able to bring in workers that can compete on a really great worker experience. Because the workers now are in the front seat. It's not the bosses anymore. The workers are totally portable. They can go anywhere tomorrow and get a new job. We need more of them. But to attract them, it's got to be easy. If it takes five years to to be trained on how to do something, there's a lot of people who can't do that. That's why they didn't go to school. Uh, for formal education.
0: Marty, you're painting a picture to me that looks and sounds very positive. How long will it take to ask you kind of more of a futuristic question before this vision that you have in front of you here where everybody participates literally, where we're, we're sort of back to this labor market where we need everybody? Um, yep. And that truly isn't just something, you know, one says because it sounds like a good thing to say, but it actually is realized in the sense that people feel m- much more uh, that they're participating in the economy. And and this is, you know, this has been, of course, exploited by politicians. You know, everyone wants this to be the case. Right. But you seem to be you you seem to be uh, you you're actually describing the steps to get there. What's this going to take? How many innovation corridors do we need to create? And and to your point about speed, I have had some people on this podcast say that it could take, for example, in Ohio, 25 to 30 years to educate everyone that needs to on industry for, you know, 4.0. Do we really have that kind of time?
1: Yeah, no, and I don't think that's the way to look at it. I think the way to look at it is to take the education and 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 kind of embed it into the process so somebody doesn't really have to learn it they can experience it and live it and and, and move around with it. It's like it would be like sending a farmer to 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 get his PhD in in agronomy and understand, you know, seed genetics. That's probably interesting but the grandfather will tell you, "Hey, look over the hill and see what's coming with the weather, and this is what you do." And you know, you can be a success without without understanding everything that's involved in everything, right? I think you can. You 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 you, you don't have to understand uh, the technology at a at a at a finite level. You need to understand the application of the technology when, why, and where to use it, and how to use it, but but I think we, I think we, I think, you know, in many circles, prestige is, is you know, uh, complexity is prestigious. Um, mm-hmm. And and there is a lot of people that want to hold on to that separation between understanding more than most instead of trying to figure out a way to get everyone involved. Um, because you have to, you're not diluting the technology you're just you're you're embedding the complexity behind the curtain, you know.
0: Yeah, that's it's interesting you 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 frame it that way, and I do think uh, there's a lot to this transfer process, right? Because to your point, to just to go back to one thing you said earlier about speed, and that the successful companies and perhaps individuals they embed speed in whatever important thing that they think is their their quest, they are able to to scale it uh, and also to speed it up. So I guess there's something there to do with workforce training where we almost seem to have previously been stuck in a wrong model where it's like, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, I don't know, endeavor this massive sort of Marshall plan moment. where We're going to train everybody and it's going to be, you know, all hands on deck. But you're sort of saying it's actually a lot easier
1: than that paradoxically. Well, well, l- that's, well listen, that's very interesting. Yeah. And we're working on things that we were never schooled on. I mean, we, yeah. we're all working on our in our day jobs on things that we never took a course on and never were schooled on. And we didn't go through a formal course at work. We went through the just being around, um, being around yeah. it, and, and gaining, you know, the mentorship, the knowledge, the collaboration, the reading the articles. I mean, I think this is uh, people learn by accretion. They don't learn by epiphany. So somebody doesn't, you know, you don't tell somebody one thing, and if it took you six months or a year to understand it, they're not going to they're not going learn about it in 10 minutes. They'll learn, finally, they'll say after 15 interactions, gee, Tron, I finally understand it now. I get it.
0: Hmm.
1: Right? But people learn by accretion, and that's why we want to get multiple touch, multiple moments. And, and the formal model is sitting at the desk all day, Probably in a world where technology is tactile, is probably not the best model for a full day.
0: Hmm. Lastly, then Marty, because this has been a very uh, rich conversation for, to me, at least. Uh, a, a wish list for this innovation corridor in Connecticut, if you, if you, you know, if readers and uh, listeners here are tuning into this any takeaways you know w- what do you still need uh, down there how should people engage whether they're you know CEOs of uh, small companies they're sure. educators or you know what is the best way to engage with an initiative like that
1: well i mean people can reach out to me i'm i'm always open and if 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 i have to redirect them and or, or if they want to participate you know we're, we're all about participation i think that's the highest value i try to solve for because these types of moments are the world has become very complex and it's complex because there's a multiple of stakeholders and they're all intertwined and you need to get everyone together working on that together so i would say we're about a year and a half two years away from from transforming all these old factories all these old buildings it is starting um, we will implement the smi Industry 4.0 adoption strategy probably this summer this fall and some other locations before we consolidate it and we'll learn a lot uh, but we believe it's a This me adoption uh, is needed everywhere in the world. It's it's the it's it's what people haven't cracked the code on yet We think this strategy in Connecticut may be one way to try to do it uh, with workforce involved too.
0: Very exciting I uh... It's always exciting to hear that manufacturing, again, might fascinate folks because I think that was and has been the key to so many good things that have happened in throughout history. Yeah, And it would seem to me that it is still an industry that's got a few more transformations to go, wouldn't you say? Uh,
1: I would say it's it's probably the most important thing that we can get right. And we will get right because I know, like you, we don't work on things that don't work out, right? Hopefully. Yeah. Marty, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: You have just listened to Episode 82 of the Augmented Podcast with host Rune Munheim. Unheim. The topic was Innovation Corridor in Connecticut. And our guest is Marty Guay, Vice President of Business Development at Stan Decker. In this conversation, we talked about a Connecticut state initiative designed to enable technology adoption and workforce creation. My takeaway is that it has long been the thinking that government-sponsored workforce development is almost the only way to stimulate learning and training at scale. And that may in fact not be the case, and may at times have the adverse consequence that businesses don't invest themselves. But focused funding and initiatives do help, and the CT Innovation Corridor seems well thought out and will presumably revitalize an important area around Hartford, which is much needed. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 62 on manufacturing excellence in Michigan. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us because we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with TULIP the frontline operations platform that connects people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring, and you can find Tulip at Tulip.com. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter, and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.